Well, moving right into the main message now. We're on the express route today in services. <laughs> We're going to open our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. I've really been enjoying our uh, study of the book of Acts. I don't think I've ever done that before as far as a series of sermons is concerned. And I've been learning a lot, and I hope you have too. We've been through some major events in the book of Acts. Of course, we started with uh, Jesus giving his farewell speech as he departed. We talked about the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. We talked about uh, the start of the New Testament church, Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that story? We talked about the first miracle of the church. We talked about uh, Stephen, his powerful sermon, and unfortunately what happened to him being the first martyr of the church. Uh, we talked about uh, Paul being called by God. We talked about Peter and uh, the calling of the first Gentile, Cornelius. Now we're looking at a story of the Apostle Paul as uh, he started to preach the gospel. And we're going to read about his uh, experience in the city of Athens, Greece. Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, what a pleasure it is to be able to open our Bibles and to read with understanding. And we know that that's a special gift from you. Not everybody is able to do that. A lot of people open their Bibles and it all seems like Greek to them. But Lord, you've given us understanding. And uh, we know that that's a special gift through the Holy Spirit. <coughs> so as we study today, Help this information not just go to our heads, but also to our heart. And help us to see in what way we can be changed by you to be more pleasing in your sight. So, Lord, help us now as we study, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <coughs> so far, we've seen the gospel taken to mostly the Jewish people. We know that they were to be called first. And some did come to Christianity and became followers of Jesus Christ. But now the gospel's going out to the Gentiles wholesale. And Paul, who of course is the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, takes the forefront in this story. He traveled to the town of uh, Athens, which as we know today is in Greece and ha has always been in Greece. Uh, and we pick up the story here in Acts 17, <coughs> verse uh, 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, you can still see remnants of the ancient city of Athens. You could just Google it or you can watch something on the History Channel. Uh, a lot of the buildings, at least parts of them, are still standing. You know, the main building that most people associate with Greece and Athens is the Parthenon. It's that big rectangular building with the huge pillars all around it. And it's really incredulous that a good deal of that building still exists and it's still standing there. Because you know what? Wars have ravaged that part of the world. They've had earthquakes. But it still stands as a testimony to the greatness of the city of Athens. So he is distressed to see that the city was full of idols. I'd like to read a little bit 
from a book that I was studying about what Athens was like in Paul's day. It says here, one of the historians referred to Athens as one great altar, one great sacrifice. In consequence, there were more gods in Athens than in all the rest of the country. Athens was the capital city. And the Roman satirist hardly exaggerates when he says that it was easier to find a god there than a man. There were innumerable temples, shrines, statues, and altars. In the Parthenon stood a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena, whose gleaming spear point was visible 40 miles away. Elsewhere, there were images of Apollo, the city's patron, of Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, and Esculapius, I believe it is. The whole Greek pantheon of gods was there, all the gods of Olympus, and they were beautiful. They were made not only of stone and brass, but of gold, silver, ivory, and marble. They had been elegantly fashioned by the finest Greek sculptures. There was no need to suppose that Paul was blind to their beauty, but beauty did not impress him if it did not honor God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, he was oppressed by the adulterous use to which the God-given artistic creativity of the Athenians was being put. This is what Paul saw, a city submerged in its idols. So back here to Acts 17. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. <coughs> they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So you can imagine the challenge that Paul faced. He, of course, used to be a Jew and a Pharisee, so he felt very comfortable talking to the people, starting with a basis of the Old Testament. Talking about men such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of his audience would be familiar with that. So Paul always had a starting place to start to preach the gospel, and he would bring it to, to New Testament times and the time of Jesus. But this was a special challenge for Paul, because none of these people in his audience, except for maybe a handful of Jews, knew anything about the Old Testament. So he didn't have that same starting place. So he stands up to give a sermon under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, so he had to have a starting point to kind of start to reach these people. So this is what he said, men of Athens, 
I see that in every way you are very religious. <laughs> so what a good starting point. That's very wise, isn't it? He says something that they're all going to agree with. With all of these idols, you know, and shrines filling the whole city, they're going to say, yeah, we are. <laughs> We're that. We're religious people. So Paul right away opens the door for the preaching of the gospel. He says, verse 23, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So they wanted to make sure they had every possible god or goddess covered. And just to cover their tracks, they built a shrine to the unknown God, the God that they may have forgotten about, or the God that maybe they didn't know about, so that they wouldn't offend him. So there's a special shrine to the unknown God. So he says, now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Just a tremendous approach that he used to begin to preach the gospel. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. So he starts to explain to them about the gospel. The true God, the one and only God, doesn't live in buildings built by humans. Now there's one thing about a temple or a shrine when it comes to these kinds of religions, you build a shrine for a god, and your thinking is that the god dwells there in that temple or in that shrine. It's a dwelling place for him. It's a place for him to stay. Well, Paul is saying, the god that I worship, who happens to be the one and only true god, does not dwell in buildings. <laughs> it's not that he's too big for buildings, but... God is the one who created the earth and created the ability for you to build buildings. Now, do you think he's going to have himself cooped up in a little, uh, you know, 8 by 12 room so that you can go and worship him there every day? No, God is bigger than that. God cannot be limited. He can't be cooped up in some, some place that you've built for him. He says in verse 25, And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him, and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. And one of them said, we are his offspring. Now he wasn't talking about the true God when this poet said that. He was talking about uh, a, a pagan God. In fact, I think it was, uh, I can't remember exactly which God it was that that person was talking about. But Paul was familiar with their literature, so much so that he could quote one of their poets and apply it to the true God. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. 
In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So what Paul did was preach the gospel. Now you might say, well, how could he preach the gospel without mentioning the name of Jesus Christ? Well, he did refer to Jesus Christ, but they weren't ready to hear that name yet. So he met them on their level, and he got an open hearing from them. So he can begin to open their minds to who the true God is. I think it was just marvelous the way the Holy Spirit inspired him to do this. He told them what they needed to hear in their culture and in their environment. Now I want to break this down a little bit. Because as Paul preached in Athens, uh, I'm going to break this down into five different areas or five different truths that he taught about God. And let's talk about ourselves a little bit and how this applies to us. The first truth that he taught them about God in verse 24 is that God is creator. And that's an important point for him to start. That's where they needed to hear what they needed to hear first. Because they're worshiping this whole pantheon of gods. And you know, the way those gods were worshipped uh, in those days is that you brought offerings to them. You tried to make them happy. You tried to please them in all ways with the hopes that they would look favorably, favorably upon you and bless you in some way. So the first thing that Paul has to teach them and instruct them is that God, the true God, the one and only God, is the creator. He is the personal creator of everything that exists. He is the personal Lord of everything that he has made. In other words, he is in charge. It's not a whole pantheon of gods of one sort or another, but it is one God, and he is in control. He is the boss over everything because he is the one who brought it into existence. And it is absurd to suppose that God is going to allow himself to be boxed up in a little shrine somewhere that humans have built. God doesn't need us to build buildings for him. He is bigger than that. Amen. In fact, he inhabits the whole universe and beyond. You know, we just know the physical universe that we can somehow be aware of. But are there other dimensions? And, and I'm sure that there are. There's the spirit dimension that God inhabits and that he is in charge of. The physical dimension and however many other dimensions there may be, we, we don't know. So what he's trying to say about God is any attempt on your part to limit him or to localize the creator God, to imprison him within the confines of a man-made building is ludicrous. So there's really no need for all of these shrines. We don't build shrines to God today. Yeah, there are churches, you know, intended to be meeting places of believers, but sometimes even churches can get out of hand. 
God hasn't called us to build crystal cathedrals for him. He doesn't need that and he doesn't desire that because people then put more emphasis on the building than on God himself. Amen. So God never intended that to happen. Turn with me to Colossians 1 and verse 15. Because Paul, in this case, in writing to the church at Colossae, said something very similar. Talking about the one true God, as opposed to all of these multitudes of gods that the Athenians worshipped. Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16. I like the way Paul says it here. Talking about the one true God. He is the image of of the invisible God, talking about Jesus Christ in particular now. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. So that's that multiple dimensions, you know, you've got the, the physical creation, the whole universe, including earth, then you've got other types of creations, the spirit realm, angels, uh, God's throne in heaven, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So in introducing the true God, Paul doesn't just start talking about Jesus and his crucifixion, and his resurrection, no, he's got to start with the basics here. He's got to say that, you know, there's not many gods, a whole city full of gods. He says there's one God, and this is what he's like. He's the creator. 